have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren. See that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away, but the word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. When I saw this text, I knew I was not going to be able to preach it in combination with last Sunday just because of all of the information in these two passages. Obviously, four verses doesn't seem like a lot on face value, and it would have been easy for me to add four verses to last Sunday's message, except for it was that these four verses. And these four verses have so much information that I decided weeks ago that I wanted to have a message just for them. The title again, now is the time, and I see really three majorly important truths in this passage. The first one is number one, intense love, number two, fading glory, and number three, the eternal word. Now, I got to tell you, there are some core values of our church, and I actually gave out a booklet, and if you haven't gotten one of those yet, I gave it out back in January. Let me know today. I've got a bunch more. I'd be happy to get one in your hand. The booklet is who we are. It gives our philosophy, our theology, gives our core values, and our core values are things like the word of God and, and uh, truth and love for others, but when I, live, when I look back on my own life and the things that are important to me, the way that I made decisions, when I look back at the reasons that I went into the ministry, I got to tell you, these three right here sum up pretty much my motivations for life. Let me go over them again. Intense love. As a young man, I fell in love with God for the first time in my life. I was always loved by God even when I was not saved. I was never not loved by God. I loved God as a child as much as I knew to do that as an 8-year-old child, as a 12-year-old child. By the time I got to 13, 14, my love for God began to fade. I was still loved by God. I had a form of a love. I appreciated that God loved me. I, I loved that I was going to heaven. I loved that God loved me. But I didn't really love God nearly as much as I did at 18, nothing compared that I did, I mean at 8, nothing compared that I did at 18. At 18, for the first time, I fell in love with God. My eyes were opened to what I'd been missing all my whole life, the connection, the relationship, the opportunity to be loved by God, to love God on a deeper level than I ever had. My first motivation for going into the ministry. As a young man in college, I was going into broadcasting, TV, radio, uh, movies, whatever that might have for me. That was the route I was going. I changed from that because I was in love with myself, and everything down that path was all about love for me. What glory could I get out of life? What benefit financially and, and power that I could get down that road? It was all about love for self. At 18, I fell in love with God. My love for myself began to fade, and I went into the ministry. In the last 20 years of my life, most of what I do has been motivated by I am madly in love with God. And here's the thing. When you're madly in love with God, you begin to love the things and the people God also is madly in love with. And so I love people. Not because I'm any better than you are. It's because I love a great God who has put his love for you on my heart. My motivation for mostly what I do is an intense love for God. And then number two, I recognized as a young man how quickly this life goes. You know, most young men don't see that. I'm not saying that I knew it because I was smarter than most. As I began to love God, God began to reveal things to me. And one of the first things that he revealed opened my eyes is just how short this life is. Early on in my 20s, there was people that I knew that passed away, young and old. There was people that I cared about who didn't pass away, but I saw their lives, and I saw wasted lives. And my second biggest motivation for going into ministry, my second biggest motivation for being the man that I am today, for making the choices that I made, first one is intense love. My second one is I didn't want to waste this life. Now, I'm 40 years old. I, I could say I'm about halfway through, right? Uh, the average lifespan for a guy actually isn't 80. I believe it's somewhere in the 70s. 
Not that men can't live past 80s, but average, you know, we're good if we make it to our 80s. So I'm about halfway through. So if I've got 40 to 50 more years of quality life, I don't want to waste it. I didn't want to waste the first half. Unfortunately, I, waited, I wasted the first half of the first half. Those first 20 years or so were mostly wasted years. The last 20, my intense love for God, I didn't want to waste that. I got 40 to 50 more of good quality service to God. I don't want to waste that. And then, number three, eternal word. When I saw that the truth by which I was living, the truth of my own making, the truth that I wanted to follow, the truth that I created, when I saw it for what it was, smoke and mirrors, and when I saw the truth of God's word and how it changed my life, how it changed my mind, how it changed my relationships with people. In fact, within the first year of my intense love for God, within the first year, my 18th year, 18 to 19, of, of really wanting to not waste my life, one of the first things I did is started eliminating friendships. Because the truth of God's word changed how I dealt with people, changed how I wanted people to deal with me, and unfortunately that meant most of my friendships were no longer good for me or me for them. We were going two different ways. They were still following a truth that I once was a part of. I was going down the truth now of God's word. It was taking us different directions. And within a year of my new journey, I lost almost all of my friends. I could say lost. I actually dropped almost all of my friends. There was a time in my life when I was about 20, 21 years old where I had no friends, none, zero. I ate dinner by myself. I, I mostly skipped lunch if I could because I didn't want to eat by myself all the time. It was getting old, always sitting in a cafeteria at college full of thousands of people with no friends. You want to talk about lonely. Lonely is not sitting in your room alone. Lonely is sitting in a room of thousands of people alone. That's lonely. <laughs> the loneliest time you feel is when there's a bunch of people around you laughing and smiling, having a good time, and you are alone. You don't feel any more lonely than you do at that moment in your life. <laughs> that was a year of my life. But God had me down that path for a reason. Now, these three things, when I saw them in this text, I knew i got to preach a message just on this. Because it's these three things that changed my life. These three things that got me on the journey to which I've been traveling for the last 20 years of my life. And I can tell you honestly, there's no way I would ever go back to what I had. There's no way I'd want anything else than what I've had. So, intense love. Number one, going back now to verse 22, First Peter, seeing you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren. See that you love one another with a pure heart fervently. Number uh, letter A, the soul is corrupted through disobedience. The heart is corrupted through hatred. When I see in verse 22 this phrase, seeing as ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth. Purified your souls. What is your soul? The soul is the essence of your identity. The soul is who you really are. A lot of people, especially in today's world, their identity is in the physical, right? Uh, they identify as a man or a woman. They identify as an adult or a teenager. They identify as a certain ethnicity. I'm not saying you can't identify in those things. I'm not saying you shouldn't identify in those things. I'm telling you, those things are only a small part of your identity. Great, you're a man, you're a woman. That's not that big of a deal. Great, you're a certain ethnicity. That's not that big of a deal. Who are you in your soul? What is it that makes you really you? Because if what makes you really you is you're a man, you're probably not going to be a very good one. That's what you're going to live by. That's how you're going to treat everyone. Every interaction is, I'm a man. Okay, good for you. I'm glad you're a man. Like every conversation, everyone has to know you're a man. We get it. You're a man. You don't have to prove it to us daily, right? If your identity is in your manhood, your masculinity, you're probably not as much of a man as you think you are. You see, the thing that you identify most is the thing you want everyone to see most about you. Do you really want everyone to see first and foremost and the most about you, of your, of your gender? Is that the biggest, most important thing in your life? Your ethnicity is the most important thing of your life? What a shame for a Christian that anything physical would be the priority of our identity. You see, our identity is not so much this, it is this. Who are you inside the shell? Inside the exterior that you only have for a time, 
the temporary shell of our physical being. Who are you eternally? The part that exits this body someday and goes into eternity, that's you. Who is that? And when I see that our souls, our identity, find its health or its corruption in one major thing, this is important, obedience to God. You see, you can corrupt the shell of your physical condition by what you put in your body. What you eat, what you drink, what you do or don't do can corrupt this shell of a body. What corrupts the soul, though? Didn't Jesus Christ himself say, look, what you put in you doesn't corrupt you. It's what comes out of you that is corrupting you. Jesus Christ, when he was talking about you in the Gospels, when he mentioned this, he was obviously not talking about the body. He was talking about who you really are, the soul. And he's saying it's what's inside that corrupts you, not the things that you eat or do. That messes with your body, but it doesn't mess with you as a person. Your soul is corrupted. It's tainted. Corruption would basically mean the, it is not functioning as it intended to do so. Your soul doesn't function properly when living in disobedience to God. And there it is. Because we find health in our souls. We find purification in our souls. We find uncorruptness in our souls when we, verse 22, obey the truth through the Spirit. That's also important. It's not about obeying the truth as you see fit. Obeying the truth under your personal philosophy, in your likes and dislikes, your emotional what you want. It's obeying the truth as the Holy Spirit directs you. That's when you find health. And then we're told, through the Spirit, unto unfeigned love of the brethren. The soul is corrupted when we disobey God. The heart is corrupted when we live in hatred. Look, at the, the message this morning is not about unforgiveness. It's not about bitterness. It's not about hatred. But there is this point I want to make, and I think it's a point everyone in this room has already heard. But let me remind you, bitterness and hatred destroys your heart. Now, what is the heart? The heart is the organ that pumps blood and oxygen and nutrients throughout your body, right? Yes, it is that. But when God is referring to the heart, God is referring to, you might say, the innermost part of your soul. If the soul is who you are, the heart is the most important part of who you are. The heart, as God sees it, is the part of your soul that essentially directs everything else. Your heart directs your identity. And when your heart dwells in hatred, the rest of your soul feels it. Have you been there before? Where you've been hurt so deeply in the soul that you now hate the person who hurt you and your whole soul feels pain because of it. You feel an aching and it's not something Tylenol can fix. You feel an aching in your bones because your soul, your identity has been affected by this bitterness, this hatred, this unloving attitude towards others. You were designed to find your identity in Christ, obedience to his truth. Your heart was designed to love, not to hate. And Christian, when you hate others, not only are you breaking God's heart, are you ready for this? When you hate others, you are breaking your own heart. You say, Pastor Russ, I hate them because they broke my heart. Let me explain something. No one can break your heart. No one can break your identity. You can allow people to affect you, but you allowed them to. It is your heart. It is your identity. It belongs to you, given by God. If your heart is broken, it's because you are letting someone break it. You have the freedom, you have the will, you have the authority to say, no, I will not let you break this heart. Now, how do you do that? You say, well, Pastor, I do that by keeping people at a distance. That's not how you keep people from breaking your heart. <laughs> All right? Because even people at a distance can still hurt you. It may hurt less. But it's not the answer. 
the answer to not letting people break your heart. You ready for this? Here it is. Is do not let them change your heart. Let me explain. Your heart was designed to love. When someone hurts you, you let them change your heart from love to hatred, and now your heart is broken. From peace to anxiety, from healing to hurt. You let them affect your heart, and your heart no longer does what it was designed by God to do, and your heart is broken. When people hurt you, you have a chance to respond with forgiveness or bitterness. If you respond with forgiveness, they don't get to change your heart. If you respond with bitterness, they have. You've allowed them to break your heart. When the world throws fear your way, you can respond with the courage of God or the anxiety of the human condition, and your heart is broken one way and healed the other. You see, your responses to how people treat you, to how people interact with you, your responses to them is what breaks your heart, not them. Yes, I get it. You're dating someone, you love them, they broke up with you, and it breaks your heart. Actually, what broke your heart is how you responded because there's plenty of people who go through breakups and they're fine. You say, well, they're fine because they didn't really love them. No, 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 you can't say that. You don't know that about that person. Well, they're fine because they weren't uh, dating them as long. Again, you don't know their history. They just chose to respond to the breakup differently than you. That's all it is. Their response was different than yours. And because you responded by letting that person in and letting them affect you with bitterness and hatred and anxiety, they broke your heart because you let them, whereas the other person said, okay, I get it. It doesn't work out. I understand. Not all relationships do. I can still treat you with love. Obviously, at a distance now, it's not healthy for us to still be really close all the time, but I can forgive you for the hurt you caused me. I can move on. I can find love somewhere else. My heart's not going to be broken. I'm going to respond in a different way. Two people, same scenario, different responses, one broken, one unbroken. Love. Unfeigned love. God designed our hearts to love. When we love, it operates as it should. When we hate, when we're bitter, it's broken. No one broke your heart but you. Because it is your response of bitterness or hatred that breaks your heart. Not their action to you. Your reaction to them is what breaks your heart. Let's go to letter B. The product of obedience to God is what? Love for his people. It's right there in verse 22. Seeing ye have purified your souls in the obeying of truth through the Spirit, unto what? What was the result? What was the product of obedience to God as directed by the Holy Spirit? Unfeigned, unbroken, unending, unconditional, never stopping, never ceasing, always there, love for who? The brethren. That word brethren implies the idea of church members. It's not necessarily referring to the world as a whole. It doesn't necessarily exclude them, but it is definitely talking about specifically the church. God, obedience to God means love for his people. Now, we're told that in other passages of Scripture. How can you love God and hate his people, right? It just doesn't make sense that way. In fact, God says you're a liar. You're a liar if you say you love me and hate others. You don't have the truth in you because that's not possible, God says. Because God says, if my love is in you, then my love for my people will also be in you. If you do not have the love for God's people in you, you do not have the love of God in you. That does not mean you're not saved because it's possible for a Christian to be running from God rather than to God. It's possible for a believer to be loving the world rather than loving the Savior. It's possible for the believer to reject the direction of the Holy Spirit, to live with a broken heart, to live with a broken identity, and therefore not love God's people. But let me tell you, Christian, if that's you, you're broken. You're not operating as God designed you to. When you obey God's word through direction of the Holy Spirit, that will always, not almost always, not sometimes, it will always include love for God's church. 
Would we be shocked to hear that? Didn't Christ come down to die for the church? Didn't Christ describe himself as the groom of the church, the bride? And didn't he actually tell husbands to love their wives as Christ loves the church? Over and over again, we are told, we are reminded, we are illustrated how important God's love is for the church. Do you really think that he's okay with you not loving the church when he loves it so dearly? I get you don't love everything about the church. That's the humanity side, right? I understand that. I can love people and not love everything about them. But when it comes down to how I treat them, I treat them with love because I love them. And because I love them, I want to help them succeed in the areas that they are struggling in, the areas that, pro- that might bother me because it might bother God. But that doesn't keep me from loving them. And then let her see. Love that lacks passion is a love that lacks impact. See that you love one another with a pure heart. And that last word in verse 22, fervently, means intensely. It means passionately. Why is passionate love so important to God? Because passive love shows often no love. You can say, I love you. Well, I'm not denying that you love me, but you probably love me passively, so I don't see it. By the way, that was exactly how I loved God in my teen years. I did love God. It was a passive love. It was a laid-back, nonchalant, yeah, God, God loves me. I love God. I'm going to heaven. But there was no action to it. There was no passion to it. There was no fervency to it. And so it almost didn't exist. At least you wouldn't have been able to see it. If you saw 17-year-old Russ and you were asked, does 17-year-old Russ love God, you probably would have said no, and you would have been almost right because my love for God was barely there. It was so passive. A lot of people use the Laodicean church in the book of Revelation to illustrate a, you might say, lackadaisical, uh, mediocre, lukewarm, ah, I don't really care about God. I mean, it's not like I hate God, but I don't really love him passionately. I'm kind of in between. That's how a lot of Christians live their lives. It's not that you don't love God. You just don't love God passionately. You love him passively. Now, let me tell you what happens in marriages where there is only, always, passive love. You ready? They end up in divorce or should have been divorced. Like, they might be together, but what's the point? Marriages that only have passive love. I love you, but I love you from a distance. I love you, but you'll never see it. I love you, but I'll never act on that love. Those marriages are falling apart because the human condition was designed to act on our love. And if we do not act on our love, we're living a lie, some form of a lie. And God doesn't want you to have passive love for him, but that's not what this passage is talking about. This passage is talking about how we love others. God does not want you to have passive love towards others. What does that mean? It means you say you love people, but there's no evidence to prove it. I cannot deny that you love people. How can I know your heart or your mind? I have no authority or ability to truly know if you love people when you say you do, but I don't see it. I can say I don't see your love for people, but I can't say you don't love people. At best, I can say you love them passively. Why would you want people to wonder? Because when someone wonders if you love them, eventually their mind inevitably is going to go down to you don't love them. And that's when everything falls apart. Once someone goes down that path of you don't love me, it's really hard to get them back. (laughs) Really hard. You know what's easier? Just from the beginning, love them passionately. Love them fervently. Let there be action, evidence on a regular basis that they can visualize, that they can feel, that they can sense that comes from you. It does not mean you treat everyone like your family. You can't practically do that. I get it. You only have one of you and there's a lot of people. But when you are with them, you treat them like you love them passionately. You give them the attention you give them the connection. You give them respect, the kindness. You give them the passion in that moment of love. 
that they deserve because they're a human being loved by God. Let's be honest, Christians. We're not very good at that. In fact, a lot of Christians would rather love a thousand people passively than ten passionately. Why? I'll tell you why. I think for a lot of us, we feel better about ourselves when we say, I love a thousand people. You know what? Probably over 900 of those don't believe you love them, but you think you do because it's passive love rather than 10 people passionately. I will also tell you this. It is easier to love a thousand people passively than 10 passionately. We take the easier road that makes us feel better, right? Isn't that just how it is? We feel better loving a thousand people and it's easier. But who feels better when you love passionately? The 10. Better 10 people know that you love them than a thousand people wonder if you love them. Take the hard road. Love God's people passionately. Ask yourself, how can I show them that love? Number two, fading glory. Verse 24. For all flesh is as grass... And all the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away. Letter A. Everything ends. Everything. Almost everything is forgotten. Yes, we have history book. Our history book here at Mid-State Christian Academy, we got U.S. history and, America, uh, I mean, uh, and world history, and, and, and there's some other histories. We, we do history of Israel in some of our texts. And, and so there is history, and there is people in the history books. It's interesting, people that lived 50, 60 years as kings and queens, they get one paragraph and one bold term, their name. The really important ones might get a few paragraphs, and the ones that impacted the world in a major way recently might get part of a chapter, a section three or four pages. A whole life, three or pa four pages. When I look at our world history books, you know how many people get three or four pages? Not many. Of the billions of men and women that have lived their lives, a handful get three or four pages in our history book. Most, most get nothing. The lucky get a paragraph. Almost everything and almost everyone is forgotten. Life is as the grass, it comes and it goes. In another passage of scripture, we're told it's like the mist, the morning mist, and when the sun comes up, it's gone. It fades quickly. The glory of man is like the flower of the grass. And I love that phrase, the glory of man, the flower of grass. You get this, the grass withereth, and, and the glory of man is a flower. The flower comes up, it's not just grass, it comes up and it looks really good, right? It blooms Oh, that's pretty. It's yellow, and it's red, and it's pink, and it's, it's whatever this color. And it comes a little flashy, right? Grass is just grass. It's just a green blade. It comes, you eat the thing, you step on the thing, it dies. You, you almost didn't even know it existed. But the flower might catch your attention for a moment. Oh, that's nice. You smile, you walk on, and you never think of it again. You know what's funny? That flower blooms and says, I am the best. I am so much better looking than the grass. This grass sure is lucky to have me brighten up the area here. And everyone that walks by me must be thrilled that I am here for them to see for a moment. And people are happy to see the flower, but only for a moment. And it, too, is forgotten. And it, too, fades away. And yet, you wouldn't know it listening to that flower in its moment, right? In its moment, it thinks it is the world. In its individual moment, that flower thinks nothing is more important than that flower, if you were to listen to it. But that flower will be fade just like everything else. That flower will be forgotten just like everything else. But everything done for Christ has a purpose. You know, when I was young, I realized how quick life ends, and I decided I did not want my life to be without purpose. I did not want my life to just be here, be gone, forgotten by most, except for maybe the few lives that I impacted because I married one of them and had kids from the rest. And, and so those that were forced into my life by childhood, and the one person I married, they would, for, they would remember me, hopefully they would remember me, and, and I'd be okay with that. I wanted more than that. Now, a lot of people, they want more than that, so they go down the path of, I want more people to remember me. 
They're not happy with their spouse and their kids. They want a city to remember them. So they do great things in the city. Some say a city is not enough. I want a state. So they, they rise to the level of leader, politician. They want to be remembered by a state. Except, you know, it's funny. These people who fight so hard to be remembered by a state, almost always history is written by the victor. And usually, almost always, the victor is someone who didn't like you. Why? Because your glory takes away from their glory. Because your choices are choices they would not have made. And so, sure, you'll be remembered, you'll be, but you'll be remembered as the victor wants people to remember you. It's usually not good. Those who rise higher are often more infamous than they are famous. I mean, it's not a history lesson, but there's even people today that were once revered as great men and women and now the new woke culture is saying, tear down their statues, they're a bunch of horrible people. Let's never say their name because you're a bigot if you even mention their name in a history book. Even now, these people who did great things for the world are now infamous, not famous. You see, I didn't want to go down the road of how many people can I get to remember me because five or six is not enough. I wanted to go down on the road of forget who remembers me. What good will my life do for this world when I'm gone? I don't care who remembers me. What I do care is that did my life have a purpose beyond my own existence? That's what I care about. That's what I cared about at 18, and that's what I've cared about for the last 20 years, and that's what I will care about for the next 40 to 50 years. Not who remembers me. Because I recognize more likely I will become infamous than famous given enough time. I just want to know that my life has purpose. The thing about a flower, it has the opportunity to drop a seed. There are some flowers that have seeds, and there are some flowers that don't have seeds. The flowers that don't have seeds, the only benefit they bring to mankind is a temporary smile. The flowers that drop seeds, though, they bring life far beyond their own existence. Letter B, slow fade or quick end. This life is not meant to be forever. Slow fade or quick end, you're not going to live forever. The older I get, the harder that truth hits. Slow fade or quick end, we all die. We all exit this life into eternal life. God did not grant us this life with the intention of us remaining in it on this earth. This is why God grants you a second life, an eternal life that will be forever. That's the one I want to look towards, not this one. It's essentially a trade. I will trade this life quickly, easily, without any concern on my part. I will trade this life for any impact I can have on the eternal one. Now, here's the, the truth about that statement. I can't do anything in this life to impact my eternity once I'm saved. If I'm saved, I'm saved, right? My eternity is locked in. But I can do things in this life to impact the eternity of others who are not saved yet. And that's the trade-off for me. I will trade this life, any glory I can get, any remembrance, famous or infamous, one or the other, I can gain in this life. I will trade it easily with no problem whatsoever for the gain of someone else's eternal life. That's what I'm fighting for. That's what I'm living for. And every day, now is the time for that trade. Every day, I offer it again to God. This life or someone else's eternal life. You know, it's great. God has accepted that trade. And I've got to be honest with you, it hasn't cost me nearly as much as I thought it would. It hasn't cost me nearly as much as I was willing to offer. When I was a young man, I remember 18, 19, I was very zealous for God. I was working under another gentleman who was a lover of God. I remember having a conversation. He was probably 30 or 40 years old. And I told him, I said, you know, um, I, would, I hope that someday, he said, I actually said, I remember this, I said, I am praying that someday God would let me die as a martyr for his church so I could impact his kingdom. That's how zealous I was. I, was, I literally was praying that. I was reading missionary stories and reading about these guys dying and thinking, oh, I'd like to do that someday, die for God's church. And my supervisor looked at me and said, Russ, that is a stupid thing to pray for. <laughs> he said, don't 
pray to die for God's kingdom. He says, if you do, you do, but don't pray for it. Don't ask for it. He said, why don't you just focus on living for God's kingdom? And I thought, oh, that actually sounds like a good idea. I was very zealous, not very wise in those early years. But I thought, I really thought, when I became a missions major, I was, in my head, convinced God's going to bring me to, like, the worst place in the world, and I'm going to serve there no matter what. God's going to take my I'm not going to live past 30. I'm going to die as a young man, and I'm, I'm willing to do all these things. I, as, at 18, 19, I was offering that to God in the trade-off. God, if you take me at 30, you take me to the, the worst place in the world. No one wants to hear the truth. As long as you use it, God, I give it as a trade, and it's a fair trade, and I'm happy to give it. You know what's interesting? I did change my prayers, altered them slightly, and here I am. The trade is still there. My life is still God's. But I got to tell you, this is not the worst place in the world. And here I am now, 40 plus, and I'm still alive. God will take your life. And you may be willing to make a trade that is very poor on your side in your head, as, you, as I just described it. But God isn't so cheap. I'm not saying God will never ask much as of his servants. I'm not saying God will never require the life of his servants. Of course, he has and does. But that is not how he operates, in my opinion, on the average. God will take the trade, and you'll come out a lot better than you thought you would. Don't be scared to make that trade with God. And then letter C, I've already mentioned this idea. I'm going to mention it again. A flower that provides beauty brings temporary joy. A flower that provides seeds brings life to another. And that was what I wanted. I wanted to go from broadcasting, living the best life I could, to ministry, giving the best life that I could. From living to giving. It was a big step. It was a journey. But I currently live in the giving, not in the living. How about it, Christian? Are you the flower that looks good, brings a smile to someone's face, but has no seed, has no intention of replenishing itself in someone else, duplicating itself in someone else? Or are you the one who recognizes it's not so much how I look, it's what I leave behind that matters? And then number three, eternal word. So there's two verses I want to see here. Verse 23 being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. And then verse 25, but the word of the Lord endureth forever, and this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. Letter A, the truth you follow will determine your destination. Now, let me uh, make a clarification here. When I say truth, I'm referring to truth that is only always truth. But the world lives today in a reality, you might say, where someone's truth may contradict someone else's truth, but they're both still true. So with the world's definition of truth, the one you choose to follow will obviously affect your destination. A lot of young men and women have chosen to follow a truth that looks best, that has the best reward system offered in following this particular truth, only to discover two decades later that not only was it not true, but the rewards were also a lie. Everything they believed about that truth was a lie. It plays out in broken marriages. It plays out in broken people, broken hearts, broken jobs, broken finances. I'm not telling you that if you follow God's truth, everything is perfect. There's still brokenness in following God's truth. But following God's truth broken, you know there is purpose in the brokenness as you follow God's truth. Following lies and brokenness, now you can only say I'm broken because I followed the wrong truth. The truth you follow will determine this destination. Don't just ask yourself, does this truth look good? Ask yourself, where is it taking me? Where is the destination that I will find myself in 5, 10, 25 years down the road if I follow this truth? Now, I have done a lot of reading. I've read the Bible. I've read portions of the Quran. I've read portions of, of the Book of Mormon. I've read uh, theology from other people who do not believe in the Bible. I've done a lot of research, and I can tell you honestly in all my research, I've read books from atheists. I've, I've read uh, blogs from atheists. I've done a lot of studying on all sides of religions and philosophies. I read a lot, and I can tell you it's interesting to me. How is it that people that follow these other truths aren't able or willing to look to the end of where these truths 
claim to take them? And how are they not able to look around at the people who follow these truths and say, it doesn't seem to work out well for them, and yet they think it'll be different for themselves? When you look at the Bible, I see an end that offers the best reward. But I got to tell you, that's not even why I follow it. No other truth offers a better reward than the Bible. But I don't follow the Bible for that reward. I follow the Bible because when I look at everything else, I only see lies. When I look at the Bible, I only see truth. And the biggest reward for me is following what I am convinced in my soul to be true. That is its best reward for me right now. The benefits of the end game and where I go and where it's taking me, those are all just, you might say, extra. Knowing that I have found the truth, I, have, I am following the truth, that for me is all I need. Letter B. Truth will always outlast its critics. The world, as it stands today, hates the truth. When I was a young man in the 80s, I remember that uh, there were a lot of people who claimed to love God. A lot of people who claimed to love the Bible. A lot of people who were respectful of the Bible. As a teenager, I remember watching TV shows. Even back then, Hollywood had a, a general respect for Christianity and for God. Not always. You know, some of the late-night comedians and so on were pretty rough. But generally speaking, there was a, a, an understanding that Christians were good, the Bible was good, Christianity was a good thing. That was in the 90s, at least in my experience. And then I went to college and afterwards, and, and things started to fade. And then about 10 years ago, it dropped off the cliff. About 10 years ago, I remember talking with my mom, and my mom said, Russ, wow, does it seem like it's really worse now than it's like been in your lifetime? I said, yeah, Mom. I, this was about 10 years ago. I said, yeah, as a pastor, I can definitely see that the world views the Bible in a much harsher way than it has in my lifetime. That the world speaks of Christians in a much harsher way than they ever have in my lifetime. That the world speaks of truth in a way they never have in my lifetime. Now this idea that everyone has their own truth and the only bad truth, the only wrong truth is the truth of the Bible. Every other truth but the Bible can be good. The only bad truth now is the Bible. I said, this is weird because this has never been the case in my life. But I said, you know, there's one good thing out of this. Now, for the first time in my life, this was about 10 years ago, I said, now it's obvious which side you're on. I said, when I was a young man, teenager, I really feel like there was people who could say they're on one side, but they really weren't, but you couldn't really know because of the way the world dealt with Christians and the truth in the Bible. You can't really do that now. The line is, is not only so blatantly uh, you know, there, it's, it's so wide, you can't even step on both sides. It's too wide. Like You have to be way over there or way over here. So there is a benefit to the world saying, now, choose a side, because now we get to see whose side people are on. The world is an extreme critic of the truth, but let me tell you this, going back to everything fades. The critics will fade. The truth will continue. The truth does not die with its critics. Verse 23, the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. Verse 25, the word of the Lord endureth forever. And then let us see, and we're done. Truth is only as reliable as its source. There's only so many sources of truth. The first source of truth that most people think about is humanity. Now, whether that humanity is you personally, you are the source of your truth, or another human being is the source of your truth. It plays out differently. The source of your truth might be a book. You say, well, this book that I read, this science textbook that I read, this is the source of my truth, except that science textbook was written by a man. So essentially, your source of truth is just another person long dead. Maybe they're still alive, but it's still a person. So the first source of truth that most people go to is humanity. It could be the majority rules. My source of truth is whatever the majority thinks. It could be the opposite. No, no, the majority is always wrong. It's the masses never come to the right conclusion together. It's always the minority. The minority is always a source of truth. It's still humanity. You could say, I'm the source of truth. Whatever I think, whatever I feel, that is true. It's still humanity. When your source of truth is humanity at any level, your source of truth 
by its very nature, is corrupt. A human does not exist that is pure. The Bible tells us that human nature tells us that. Open your eyes. You know it to be true. If your source of truth is humanity, the source of your truth, by its nature, is corrupt and therefore cannot be trusted. Some people go down the road of, well, then my source of truth is science. Not the scientists, but science itself is my source of truth, except there's a problem. Your source of truth might be science. You might claim it is, but it actually is the scientists interpreting the science. Because science doesn't give truth. Science doesn't create truth. Science only experiments to determine what is true. Science cannot create truth. Science can only find truth. There is a difference. So if your source of truth is in science that does not create it, then your source of truth is in science that does find it. But then we're back to your source of truth isn't in the science. It's in the scientists who are doing the finding. And your scientists are corrupt. I'm not saying I'm not, I don't love science. I'm not saying science is wrong. I'm just saying scientists are human and they're corrupt. Look at science textbooks from 200 years ago. They've been revised so many times over that so much of the information in science textbooks from 2,000 years ago is now complete myth, complete, not even, not even preached or taught at all in class because scientists 200 years ago didn't know what they're talking about. They say, well, that's different. Scientists today do know what they're talking about. Come on, folks. Two years ago, the scientists were telling us a bunch of things about COVID that now today they're saying, oops, we got that wrong. That was only two years ago. Oh, oops, masks don't help. Oh, oops, social distancing didn't help. Oh, oops, oh, oops, oh, oops. Now they're starting to come to the conclusion, oh, oops, we might have also made a mistake on vaccinations and what level they help you. At first, the scientists told us that you are guaranteed to never get COVID if you take the vaccine. Now they're saying, oh, oops. All right, so that's only two years. I'm not trying to preach against COVID-19 or against vaccinations. That is not the point. My point is scientists are corrupt. Not in the sense of immoral, in the sense of they're human, as all humans are human, and therefore all humans are corrupt, meaning we aren't perfect. That's what I'm trying to tell you. Scientists aren't perfect. The intellect of a scientist is not perfect. The human condition of all people, yes, including scientists, the human condition by its nature is corrupt. Your source of truth is in science. You've got to be honest. It's actually not in science. It's in the scientists who tell you what to think about the science. Corrupt. We're back to humanity again. So really, there's only two sources of truth, humanity or God. If it's not God, all other sources of truth fall under, in one form or another, humanity and the corruption of humanity. The source of truth that is God is the only one that steps outside the corruption of humanity, that is not broken by humanity, that is not left in an impure state by humanity or the corruption of humanity. Only God can step outside that and offer truth, incorruptible truth. And so, let me leave you with this. Truth is only as reliable as its source. And if your source of truth in any way is connected to humanity, you're in trouble. They say, Pastor Russ, the Bible was written by humans. How can you stand there and say that your source of truth is God when humans wrote the Bible? Just like scientists tell you or interpret for you what is science, the people who wrote the Bible only wrote what God told them. It is not that everything scientific is wrong. Unfortunately, science can be corrupted by the scientists who, are, who can and are often wrong. That's the issue. The science wasn't wrong. The scientists were wrong. Well, you might say the science of this book is directly from God. And the scientists, you might say, who wrote it down did not add their own opinions, did not corrupt what was given to them by God. So what you have is a book given purely by God using people who desired to not corrupt it with their own thoughts. And just because people put the words in the book doesn't mean 
It was their words. God gave them the words. The truth they wrote came from God through them. And so this book is the word of God, the incorruptible, everlasting, enduring word of God. My source of truth is God. Therefore, my source of truth is God's word. My source of truth is not humanity, not culture, not the likes and dislikes, emotionally or otherwise, of the majority or the minority, not the leadership, politically or religiously. My source of truth is the creator of the world. How about yours? Now is the time. The time for what? Now is the time to love. Now is the time to not just love passively, but passionately. Now is the time to leave something behind. Not your own glory, because that will fade. Not your own legend, it will be forgotten. To leave behind something in your life that will duplicate in another. And now is the time to stand on this book when the world and even so many Christians are running from it. How about it, Christian? What are you doing with your time? Because it is limited. It is fading. And it's fading a lot faster than many of us in this room could ever imagine. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for your people that we would not lose sight of the fading of time. That we would ever, every day, be reminded that, it, that a new day is a gift from you. That we are not guaranteed the 80, the 100 years that some think they will get. And that we would be able to invest our lives in something that is eternal. Not just temporary glory or a legendary status that we hope will last further than two generations once we die. I pray that our actions, our passionate love, would leave behind your glory and would we leave behind an opportunity for people to see your glory in a way they never did, that they would be saved and their eternity would be changed. In Jesus' name, amen.